Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 345. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there... Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. This episode is sponsored by the Receptionist for iPad. It's the highest rated digital check-in software for therapy offices and behavioral health clinics used by thousands of practitioners across the country. Sign up for a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash therapy chat. And when you do, you'll also receive a $25 Amazon gift card. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today, for the last episode of August, I have another must-listen conversation to share with you, especially if you're a therapist, but basically anyone in these times we're living through can benefit from the information that you're going to hear about regarding trauma exposure, secondary traumatic stress, vicarious trauma, which we were talking about last week, and what to do about those things. So I've focused this month on self-care practices, things you can do, what's practical. And my guest today is someone who has really been a pioneer in talking about the effects of trauma exposure on helpers. This is a replay of an interview from back in 2016 with Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. Laura Vandernoot Lipsky is the author of the powerful best-selling book, Trauma Stewardship. 
an everyday guide to caring for self while caring for others. And she has a wonderful TED Talk entitled Beyond the Cliff, which I'll link to in the show notes. So last week, you heard me talking about how trauma exposure through work is a major problem for those of us in the helping professions. And that includes therapists, teachers, medical professionals, doctors, nurses, paraprofessionals in the healthcare field. Witnessing people in pain and suffering, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, or loss, witnessing loss over and over again, and just understanding how painful the life can be and how cruel sometimes humans can be to one another, it really takes a toll. People who go into these fields are helping professionals. That means we care about helping other people. And if you're someone who's a caregiver, i.e. a parent, or if you have a parent who's elderly, who you are concerned about, even if you're not taking care of their daily needs, you're going to find something beneficial in this conversation. Because when I was talking with Laura, She talks about in her book how she had worked for years with trauma survivors as an advocate and activist, and she gradually began to realize that she had been deeply impacted by trauma exposure. It really sinks up on you. I say that all the time. It's so insidious, especially if you're good at pushing away your emotions, and you kind of have to be good at that to go into these fields. So Laura gradually realized how she had been impacted by trauma work, and She explains in in her book and her TED Talk what it was like for her and what it might feel like for you. I wanted to know, how did she get through that? Because it's not just fun and games. It's not just a bad day or bad week or needing a, a a, a week off or a month off. We're talking about major physical and emotional reactions happening. It always catches up with you at some point. So I'm sharing this with you in hopes that if you're beginning to feel some effects of vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, burnout, you can come back from it. It's not too late. Even if you've developed a chronic illness or if you've had an emotional breakdown, it's not too late. You can recover. You can heal. And if it hasn't gotten to that point for you yet, good. There's hope for preventing that from happening, but you have to pay attention because the impact of trauma is real. So in our conversation, Laura shares what it was like for her during that process of recovering from burnout, and she describes simple, inexpensive, and effective techniques to overcome the effects of secondary traumatic stress, which are not something that only some people are susceptible to. Anyone is going to be, who is working in a helping profession or who is helping, is going to have some impact from it at some point. When I first started working in this field 20 years ago, I remember talking with someone who told me that nobody stays in trauma work more than seven years. And, you know, I thought, oh, that won't be me. Ha ha ha. I'm too tough for that. I'm... I'm a superhero. But the truth is, the reason why they said that is because you can't just have all this exposure to trauma and ignore how it's affecting you because you're a human. And the more we try to push through, as noble as that intention is, the more harm it does to us. And then eventually, if we keep pushing through as we are harmed, then we will do harm to others. 
And we don't want that. So I might be making this sound very serious because it is serious, but this is not a grave and depressing conversation. I feel it's hopeful because Laura has been to those those places where it feels like you can't come back. And she came back. She has a more recent book called The Age of Overwhelm, which came out in 2018, which you might want to check out as well. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But remember, if you are feeling like you can't do this anymore or you're worried about yourself, pay attention to how you feel. Trust what your wisdom is telling you. And know that you can heal. You're not alone. This has been a very, very, very tough period of time, starting for many people in 2020 with the pandemic. And for millions of other people, things have been rough long before that. And that's just one more straw on the camel's back, I guess. (laughs) So... You're not alone if you're if you're struggling, if you're worried, but this episode contains many suggestions and ideas to help you kind of recenter yourself and understand how to move forward. So I hope you will enjoy my conversation with Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. Today, I'm so honored that I have a very special guest. Laura Vandernoot Lipsky is here with me today. Laura, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. I just want to pick your brain about your work. And um, so to start off with, in your book, Trauma Stewardship, in your wonderful TED Talk, you're very clear that in your life, there was a point that you realized the trauma work you'd been doing for a long time had really taken a toll on you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so what what happened for me was that I started doing this work formally when I was about 18 years old. And sometimes as one can do at that age, if you've got a lot of stamina and you've got the you know, time, there can be a huge amount of oneself and one's time that you can dedicate to it. So that's what I was doing. And that's what all of my friends who were doing this work and my colleagues were doing is we spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time working and we worked a number of places and they were all extremely intense places. So homelessness and domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse and, um, all of that was within this larger context that we're all working on of systematic oppression and liberation theory. So I had a lot of stamina and had a lot of um, passion and had a lot of love and a lot of commitment and had very little, like little to no context for what we we're doing in terms of how we were going to sustain. And mm. maybe that was short sighted of us. And maybe it was a developmental stage when you're that age where, you know, you can be pretty in the, in the now. Um, so I did that work for a long time with no kind of thinking about how to sustain and, uh, you know, passion and anger and rage and politics can carry you for quite some time. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, um, for me, it just, it, it became evident. A number of people brought it to my attention. A number of clients I was working with brought it to my attention. So there were a number of people who, really, um, tried to communicate to me that they felt I was having a hard time. And I was, it took me a long time to come to that understanding. Um, but when it did, it was a combination of people trying to reflect that back to me and communicate that to me, as well as me finally having, you know, just what, what many of your listeners might be able to relate to is just when you finally have that moment in your life where 
you're really able to see how much you're tripping and how much it's all getting to you and how much it's all adding up. And for a lot of us, we don't do that necessarily on our own terms, but we do that, you know, sometimes when you're sitting across from a doctor, sometimes when a loved one says something to you, or sometimes when your kids don't want to talk to you anymore. I mean, sometimes it comes out of more of a crisis. So part of the hope, right, when we do this work is that we're able to independently, proactively, preemptively uh, gain some insight into this. So, so you can do it on your terms as opposed to where you're having to do it from a reactive place. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I mean, that's the thing is that we are helpers. We do not receive help. We give help. So it's like, you know, I mean, that's the superhero kind of role that we take on with all of our passion and love for the work and our dedication and selflessness. But it always comes back to bite you because at some point, you know, obviously this very tough work that we do takes a toll on us because we're humans. And if we weren't, we wouldn't be any good at our jobs. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I know for me how I was raised in a number of traditions, both in my life and certainly in the work where there, there was that very intense communication, whether it was implicit or explicit of if you care enough and if you're committed enough, and if you're down with your cause enough, you're going to suck it up. I don't know how it rolls out for other people. And I don't know for how how many of us get to, to your point of what you're saying is like, no, we don't take care of ourselves. We take care of other people. We don't focus on ourselves. We focus on other people and where that ever came like an either or situation. You know, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know how many people relate to it that way, but I do think, I do think there can be the sense of, there's a lot there. I mean, I think there's pride and there's ego and there's like, you know, it's not, I mean, many of us come into this work cause we're not trying to be self-reflective, <laughs> you know, like if we're trying to be self-reflective, we might choose something else. So I think there's, it can get really complicated <laughs> pretty quickly. Um, and I think so many of our fields do a tremendous, tremendous disservice, whether you're a therapist or you're a firefighter or you're in the military or you're a journalist, a lot of our fields aren't helping us out either. And I don't, I don't hold them accountable. I mean, we have to be responsible for our own selves. Also, it's nice when we have a field that is conducive and supportive to us. I mean, in terms of training us in school around it and in terms of then encouraging it as opposed to, again, some of the implicit or explicit ways that 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 we're led to believe that we're weak if we need help or something's wrong with us or we're selfish or, you know, building on a lot of that socialization and internalized oppression. Yes, which can be the effect of the work and the setting, you know, like you said. And it, for example, if you're an emergency room doctor and you, you know, go through med school and you have to do these 36 hour rotations where you don't have much time to sleep and everything's a crisis, it's no different from being in a domestic violence shelter where it's a 24 seven environment and there's crisis all the time. And, you know, so it's nurses, doctors, it's, you know, anyone who's in a helping profession, not just therapists and um, line workers in any mental health profession or any helping profession, firefighters, police, you know, and we all just have this sort of, I know I've talked to many, 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 many people who just don't think that, um, we are supposed to show any kind of weakness and people see it as showing weakness to say, I'm not okay. That was really upsetting. I need some time. You know, I'm not, I'm not taking care of myself. I'm not eating well. I'm not 
doing good things for my body. Right. Absolutely. And even with that, I mean, there's a few things. There's, it, it goes beyond where we can get competitive with each other. We can we can really martyr ourselves and we can participate in that martyr culture. And, you know, when I present, I always I exaggerate it deliberately. And there has not been one group of people with whom I've worked who have not related to this. And I mean, this is every field I've gotten to work with. And even though I present it in such like an exaggerated way, I mean, every time I present it, people know what I'm talking about, where, you know, where it can get so extreme where you, you know, you have the team on the fourth floor of the building, looking at the team of the third floor in the building or the organization in the North part of your community, looking at the organization in your South part of the community, or this office looking at that office being like, oh, look at you all taking time to go pee during the day. Yeah. Well, at our organization, we really care about families. So none of us take time to go pee during the day. And, you know, we found that by dehydrating ourselves, we can serve 12 more families a quarter just by, you know, so that whole piece that we <laughs> run on each other. And it's, and it's actually not such an exaggeration when you look at it on the ground where people really feel like it's some kind of a weakness to need to eat lunch, you know, I mean, these oh, are the places that like, lunch? yeah, exactly. <laughs> where it's like these, and, and people do the thing like, oh, must be nice, you know, good for you. And I was recently in Boston and I was talking, there's a beautiful woman that I was talking to. And we were talking about all the different levels it goes where, again, it looks like if you shower regularly, you know, if you like put any attention into your physical appearance, as opposed to just portraying a downtrodden, you know, cause many of us have internalized, like if you care enough about what you're doing. And again, if you have that level of commitment, you're just going to, you're going to have this downtroddenness, you know? So if it looks like you shower regularly, then people are like, I'm sorry, do you not have a caseload? Or like, are you not like, do you have she time must not to be do busy this? enough. Exactly. And this woman in Boston, she said, anytime she wears something other than like, you know, like a black t-shirt and jeans, like literally anytime it looks like she's done anything, people consistently come up to her and they're like, well, look at you. <laughs> And I think there's so much to that in terms of internalized sexism and uh, like all sorts of stuff. Yes. Um, but to your point earlier too, I mean, it's when I started doing this work and particularly around vicarious trauma, you know, there were some likely groups, of course, that I got to work with, you know, and then as the work has gone on, I mean, I, I can't believe who I'm working with. Like I work with a lot of librarians now, mm. you know, so this looks different for everybody, but there's some of us who came into this work and we knew it would be hard and maybe we didn't know it'd be this hard, but you don't go into medicine or law or counseling or crisis for so you don't go into any of this thinking it's not gonna be hard and again many of us the landscape has changed and things are kind of off the chain in a way they didn't used to be and all that but then there's people you know then there's library scientists who are like these incredible librarians who go into their work because they love the great Gatsby and they love Shakespeare and now they find that they're in these hot like uh, like hospital-like settings instead of in their libraries where their libraries have turned into community mental health centers. They've turned into like oh, yeah. domestic violence response places. I mean, they've turned into these places both because of funding and what's happening in their city. So that's a whole other kind of cohort who I'm working with is all these different fields where they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I signed up for this. I didn't sign up for this. And of course, that's what public educators have been dealing with for a long time where they're like, I, I wanted to work with like, like adorable children. You know, they're like, I didn't want to deal with, I mean, I wasn't thinking I was working with like hungry kids. I didn't know that I was working with abused kids. Yeah. I didn't know that I was having to do active shooter drills every month. So that's in like, we can see that now in field after field where people are like, whoa, this is not, 
what I intended, you know, and then you have a very hard ethical decision of, so then do you stop being a public school teacher? Like do you stop being a librarian because five days out of the week you're having to like deal with folks who are shooting up in your bathroom. That's like hard. And these are caring people. So they want to do something about the folks who are drug addicted in their community. And also they're librarians. They, 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 they're not chemical dependency specialists. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's that whole, like, I knew I was going to do this, but I didn't know it was going to be bad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you kind of came to that unavoidable conclusion that, wow, I need to do something about the way um, my work has impacted me over time. Can you talk about what, what did you do and how that changed things for you? Yeah. I mean, what I did was first, I finally admitted that I had, I was out of my mind. I mean, I was like having a near psychotic break. So first, the first thing I did was admitted how completely out of my mind I was. And then I just started asking for help. I mean, then I started asking for a lot of help and from all sorts of people. So I, I, I was a part of, you know, a community of colleagues where I think we did what some of your listeners might be able to relate to, where you do that dismissive deal. You know, you're like, you haven't been in the trenches. You don't know what it's like. You can't possibly understand this. You, I mean, this whole way we just dismiss, like anybody who tries to help us or way and we're like, no, you don't get it. Um, so I had some awareness of how I I ran that with people like all the time. So I knew I was going to need to get some help from some very particular people who I couldn't do that stuff with, you know? So like, you know, whenever I could see Desmond Tutu or spend time in Desmond Tutu's presence, I would spend time in his presence, right? Trying to learn anything I could from him. He obviously was somebody who I wasn't going to go up against and be like, oh, Desmond, you don't understand. So that was somebody I spent time with, right? I spent time with a number of healers in all different modalities, um, all, all sorts of spiritual healers, like literally sitting at their feet, you know, in the dirt asking for help. So I did that from a lot of people. I became a student of Thich Nhat Hans, who's an incredible monk. Um, so I asked for help in all different, I mean, from so many different people and, and I just kept on that path for a long time. And then I got really serious about having a daily practice, you know, about doing some things every day in a very, very, very disciplined way, um, which many of those I had already been doing, but kind of wrapping my mind around having a daily practice, you know, understanding that I'm not entitled to do this work because I love it and I care about it. And it means something to me that I have to prove every day that I have what it takes to be able to do the work and to be able to do the work well. Mm. That's very powerful. And what you said about um, becoming a student of Thich Nhat Hanh makes sense because there's something about your presence that's very serene and very like what really was the most impactful for me when I heard you speak a couple months ago is that you believe that there is still hope in spite of how awful things can be. And I think doing trauma work and seeing so much despair and feeling helpless, you know, and even when you're not doing trauma work, but when you're a librarian and five days a week, people are shooting up in your bathroom and you're just like, I don't know how to solve this. And I want to make a difference. And I just feel so helpless. I think that kind of meaning is such an important part of keeping going as a person and a professional. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I think you're, you're generous to say that. I mean, I definitely, I, I certainly struggle with hope 
feeling hopeful. Um, I mean, I, I'm constantly moved by the people with whom I get to work for sure, you know, and just honored every single day, uh, by the folks with whom I am getting to work. Um, and I certainly grapple a lot with, wow, the world, goodness, <laughs> Wow. You know, and, and, and what so many people I think can relate to is that sounds like just when you kind of couldn't imagine it getting worse, then something else happens. And I, I feel like it is this just continuing dialing up, dialing up, dialing up. So I think that's where so I've learned from so many of these teachers that having a very disciplined practice is critical, you know, because the, the imperativeness of bringing it back to this moment in this moment, we're not future tripping. We're not spinning out about what could be. You're going to bring it back. Like in this moment, there is a blossoming tree in front of me. In this moment, I don't have food poisoning. In this moment, my children are okay. In this moment, this organization I'm working with, they seem to be doing well. You know that you just keep bringing it back to in this moment. And then whatever's not going well, then you deal with that. But there's a big difference between that and doing this. Oh my God, like everything is falling Mm -hmm. apart, you know? Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience, and one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Therapist, has this ever happened to you? You're sitting with a client in the thick of a therapy session, fully focused on the important work that's happening between you and the client. Suddenly, 30 minutes into the session, from down the hall, you hear the door to your office suite open. You and your current client were the only people in the suite, but now someone has come in. You're distracted from your current client as your anxiety shoots through the roof. Is it your new client who's scheduled to meet with you in 30 minutes? But your current session has 20 more minutes to go, and you don't want to interrupt this client's process to go check on who's there. Are they wandering through the suite? looking for a receptionist? Is it a delivery person here to drop off a package that needs a signature? Are they about to come knocking on the therapy room door? Is it your neighbor from across the hall dropping off a piece of your mail that was left at their address? You hear the door close. Did they leave? This has happened to me so many times over the years. As I anxiously anticipated this session with the new client, I would worry they were feeling anxious or abandoned because they weren't greeted when they got to the office. Now you don't have to worry, and your clients can relax too, knowing that you have a discreet, stress-free way for them to check in when they arrive for their appointment. The receptionist for iPad is a simple, inexpensive way to allow your clients to discreetly check in, to notify providers of a patient's arrival, and to ensure your front lobby is stress-free. The software sends an immediate notification to the therapist when a client checks in and can even ask if any patient information has changed since their last visit. Sign up for a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash therapy chat. And when you do, you'll also receive a $25 Amazon gift card. Yes. 
And that's what it starts to feel like. It's just like it's creeping into everything. And suddenly it's like, you know, there's nothing is okay and nothing is ever going to be okay. It's like, that's a, that's about, you know, it's as scary as it can be. Yeah. 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 So can you talk about some of the daily practices that people can use to lessen the impact of trauma and, and this work? Yeah, I think, I mean, much of what I do when I talk with people about this is I try to come up with the things that seem to be the most efficient, most effective, and least expensive. Because the majority of people I'm working with, you know, almost none of them are like, oh, I, we have abundant resources. Mm-hmm. Certainly organizationally, institutionally, systemically, most of these folks are not, you know, bathing in abundance. And then many people, you know how, it, I mean, just how poorly so many people in so many of these fields are paid and compensated. So it's not like anybody in their personal life, at least the people I'm working with are not like, oh yeah, I'm set, you know? So right. I try to come up with the least expensive, most efficient, most effective. And what I do is I've drawn on what's been passed down to me from my teachers. I tried to kind of what like what we know to be true in terms of, you know, community after community after, uh, you know, tradition and practice and whether it's religious or spiritual or a a community of people that like just time honored traditions, like what all of our ancestors did to be able to survive drawing on those. And then of course, now there's so much research into, you know, I mean, first there was a research, research in the brain and then there's research into, gratitude. <laughs> there's research into, so now there's, a, so that for a lot of people, they want research, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so now there's a lot of research that's available as well. So, um, a lot of what I talk about when I talk about vicarious trauma is this idea of, you know, this cumulative toll that happens and this idea of get, becoming very saturated over time. And some of this is building on the work of Peter Levine and other of our colleagues who look at this idea of just saturation, right? And that if we're not tending to our nervous system, if we don't have an intentional way, I think about it in terms of like metabolizing, right? So everything we're exposed to and what we witness and what we sit with and what you hear and what you uh, take in, all of that, how do you metabolize it? And how do you readily metabolize it? So you don't metabolize it only in the evenings and you don't metabolize it on the weekends and you don't metabolize it during your sabbatical, which you probably never take, but like in the moment metabolizing, because we want to pay very close attention to not becoming saturated. Cause for anybody who has ever reached their brink, you know, coming back from that is really difficult and mm-hmm. hard and painful. And sometimes it's, it's sometimes not coming all the way back. Right. Yeah. So talk a lot with people about this idea of metabolizing. And, um, and so for me, I think about it, uh, the language I use is this idea of a daily practice, right? So you can call it a daily ish practice. You can call it whatever you want, <laughs> but really this idea, which we talked about a little bit about a few minutes ago, that, I don't, I think we need to shift. For me, I have found benefit in shifting away from the paradigm of entitlement to do the work to demonstrating every day that I acknowledge it's an incredible privilege to do the work and that I, I need to, um, prove to myself that I have what it takes to bring my highest self to this. And this is coming from me who spent like decades, not having, not wanting to do anything about this and still get to do the work I loved so much you know, a hundred hours a week. And that did not end well for me. And it doesn't end well for anybody I know. Um, but I, of all people was somebody who really, really pushed that. And then when you dive into this more deeply, you really see again, that in teacher after teacher and tradition after tradition, it does seem like it requires that we do something every 24 
ish hours, right? And they say there's a thousand doors to enlightenment, but that you're doing something every 24 hours with an intention of cultivating your capacity to be present, right? And to be able to metabolize everything you're witnessing and what you're experiencing, and you're able to deepen over time this abiding sense of presence. So one of the most efficient and effective and least expensive things to do, not surprisingly, is engage your breath and engage your breath in a very intentional way. Um, if you're going for kind of high, high reward and low input in some way, just in terms of time and resources, you know, you figure out a way to get your heart rate up every day, six days a week, I would say, unless you have medical advice, not to, but unless you're medically advised against it, you find your way to get your heart rate up and break a sweat like six days a week. And again, that doesn't have to be 90 minutes of Bikram yoga. That can be 12 minutes of wind sprints, but you're doing it and you're doing it not in front of the news and you're doing it not while you're taking a run with a colleague where you're complaining about your lives, but you're doing it with a sense of may anything that has accumulated in me in the last 24 hours now move out of my nervous system, you know? So that is a, a very, very significant part, I think, of a daily practice is that you do something to tend to your nervous system. You're doing something to attend to your health on that level. And I think there's something about that purging and that detoxing and moving this out of you that seems to be really important. Mm -hmm. um, another practice that I talk with people a lot about, and of course I always preempt it with, I know it can seem contrived and anybody can mock me through it who wants to mock me, um, was that people, if they don't already, that they develop and if they already have it, then they deepen a gratitude practice. And again, we know this in tradition after tradition, this has passed down. Um, and also, at least I'm going to speak in the United States. I don't think we're known as a society for being proactively and preemptively grateful. So I think there's something very powerful in bringing in a practice where you don't just leave it to yourself to think you're going to go through your day grateful every day, but like you set alarms on your phone and those are your gratitude alarms or a colleague I work with who worked with torture survivors, you know, before any meal, he always did the rose and the thorn with his family, you know, so they talk about one beautiful thing in their day and one really hard thing in their day, you know, or anybody who runs a meeting or if you have supervision with your fellow therapist, you know, you definitely start out and end by everybody going around the room saying one thing that's going well, you know, and these practices, I mean, we know this intuitively and we know it because any people who have folks in their lives, those folks you look to where the glass is always half full, not because the glass is always half full, but because that's their orientation. Mm -hmm. This is what you see in Thich Nhat Hanh. This is what you see in Desmond Tutu. It's what you see in Wangari Matai. It's what you see in these folks that they're not having an orientation that the glass is half full because that is a real, like they're, that is their orientation. And again, any, anybody who's been through any of these big waves in life, you know that few things sustain you during those times as readily as an ability to find meaning and an ability to find something to be grateful for. And in terms of logging your 10,000 hours or helping your, you know, neural pathways connect, man, you want to do that over and over and over every single day, you know? So that's another, I think, really important part of the practice. I talk a lot with people about limiting their exposure, just being very, very mindful about Thich Nhat Hanh talks about being really intentional about your consumption. So you can think about that in terms of exposure. Like, do you need to work five days a week? Could you work four days a week? Could you work three days a week? You know, being really thoughtful about that, being thoughtful about where you volunteer. Again, with consumption, being incredibly 
incredibly intentional about conversations you participate in, media you watch, what you listen to, that kind of whatever you're doing, you're able to ask yourself, is this of benefit? Like to what benefit am I doing this or engaging in this? You know, and that can be gossiping in a workplace, right? That can be watching a particular show. And it doesn't mean that you're just, you know, it doesn't mean that you're like, I only drink chamomile tea and mm-hmm. you watch nature shows. No, but like if you're diving into a particular show, you're diving in with an intention of what you're doing. If you're participating in a conversation, you're not saying it's supervision when you know you're just gossiping with a colleague, you know, that you're being really just honest about what's happening, right? So I think that the other pieces that we talk a lot about with people for practice is consumption, you know? Um, another part of a practice we talk about, and this takes no time, it's just kind of a reallocation of where you put your thoughts is being very, very clear every day. You spend a moment a day, you know, when you're making your breakfast or sitting in traffic where you just ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, that you always remind yourself that this is a choice. It's not being done to you. You know, you can choose to do it differently. You can choose to not do it. So those are some of the practices that we work with folks on. And again, other than the working out, most of them don't take much time, if any. Yeah. Well, that's so helpful the way you listed them out like that. And um, I remember when, when I saw you in Connecticut, you were talking about working out, you know, six days a week. And I immediately thought, oh, haha, like, that's impossible. Who has time for that? Like, no way I can do that. I just, I can't like, that's fine, but not for me. And then you said in your talk, so if you can't do that, what are you doing instead? And I thought overworking, being on Facebook, like I knew right away what I'm doing to prevent myself from doing something good to take care of myself. So I like how you talked about how am I doing with that overworking? How am I doing with that neglecting myself and things like that, like not being unrealistic that those habits creep in. Can you talk about that a little bit? Instead of saying, okay, so I'm going to change my life. This trauma has really affected me. So from now on, I'm not going to binge watch Netflix. I'm not going to, you know, drink three glasses of wine a night. And talking about how those kinds of things that we do to avoid the way we feel, being aware that that's going to happen. But how do you like, change it by doing less instead of just trying to be unrealistic about, Oh, I'm not going to do any of that anymore. Sure. 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 So unreal, there's unrealistic. And then there's like the kind of like judging and all of that, that we do with ourselves. Right. You know, that there's all of that too. So I think the, I mean, part of the way I think about it is just how do we do this work and do no harm, you know? Yes. And so again, much of it is, I just appreciate when we can be honest about what's happening and we can be accountable. So, um, you know, if you say, I don't have any time, that's just not, they're just, I want you to like, I think it's helpful for us to look at like, what's not true about that, you know? And I say that to like medical residents who actually have no time, you know? So, but I think being able to be really honest with ourselves about the default places we go of like, I don't have any time. I'm busy. It would be selfish of me to do this. My kids are needy. My boss is a nightmare. Like we can list all these things, which again, might be compelling in the short term possibly. But then if you really kind of travel down the route and go to the essence of like, what is that about? Like, You've created your life in a way that you have no time for doing something that literally could keep you alive. You know, I mean, this is what I talk with people about is like, you do these things as if your life depends upon it. Because honestly, when we look, I mean, so much of my work, you know, is I get called into places after very sad things happened, including with our colleagues. So us paying attention to rising suicide rates in our field, I cannot tell you how many people 
have approached me and described to me about their cancer and their heart disease. And I'm not saying anything about the causes of these. And person after person will say, I can tell you exactly when this cancer started. I can tell you exactly. I will tell you what my doctor said to me about my job and my heart disease, you know? Mm. So, um, so I think being able to look at like, wow, have I really created this kind of existence where I don't have time for something that might actually keep me alive and doing no harm? They're staying alive. And then there's, how are your personal relationships going? Like, do you have any personal relationships left? How are your professional relationships? Do they leave a lot to be desired? You know, because remember, most of us are going to hold it together on the job. Um, but the place where the harm is going to start creeping in generally is in our immediate part of this web of life, you know, even as you're tending to parts of the web out there, but in our immediate part of the web is where for most of us, it's going to really creep in. And that's where you notice a diminished health, you know, and you didn't notice that you're spending less time with people who you care about or who could bring any joy into your life, you know, and then things get kind of messy with your colleagues. And then at some point it does get to the, to the place where we don't have the A game we much want once had, or would want to have on the job. You know, so I think whatever you do, you're just aware of it. You're not like, oh, no, I'm only drinking with water with lemon all the time now. No, but like if you're having your coffee, like smell the coffee beans, like chew on them, just like get really into them. If you're smoking cigarettes, like lick the cigarette, like get really like track what's happening. You know, don't just be like, oh, I can't I'm not paying attention to my addictions. They don't mean anything like get it like a profile chart, like get into whatever you're doing. And if you're turning on scandal, you know, just really be like, OK, I am super clear what I'm getting from Olivia Pope right now. You know, but you're not just like watching scandal torture scene after torture scene spacing out, you know, um, so that whatever you're doing, there's an intentionality, no judgment around it. And you're just clear of like, right now, I might need something of the level of scandal to kind of go where I need to go in my head. Fantastic. Like you're tracking it, you know, um, but that you're not just doing this thing of like, I'm not paying attention to anything that I'm consuming because then there's not an accountability and you can't change it. And then there's no, then, then there's no, then, then where's the power in our lives. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, doing everything mindfully, even if it's licking your cigarette. Yeah. With intention. Right. <laughs> A quote that you shared in one of your presentations is um, something that I found very meaningful. And it was, um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but it was by Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Did I say that right? No, yeah, Rinpoche. Uh-huh. Yeah. Rinpoche, thank you. Being able to hold the sorrow of the world in your heart while never forgetting the great Eastern sun. It, it makes me think of remembering that there is beauty in the world, no matter how hard things are. And I think yes. that's so powerful for our, our field. Yes. Or for humanity, you know, just like everyone as we struggle. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is where a practice really comes into. And that's where discipline comes in. Because first of all, there's the whole, you know, neuroscientists will talk to you about the negativity bias, you know, how our brains are wired to be, you know, tracking what might be happening and all the negativity. And then there's just the overwhelm of life, right? And again, that's where neuroscientists says whatever fires together, wires together. And Pema Chodron says, whatever you do, that's what you're getting better at. So this is where we want to be very intentional about cultivating a gratitude practice so that you can't, so much of what we talk about with trauma and vicarious trauma is like, how do you have the spaciousness, right? How do you have the equanimity to bow deeply to the suffering, 
be on your knees with the poignancy of impermanence and all of that. Be absolutely there for that. And simultaneously notice when it feels good to put on a sweater and notice what your meal tastes like and be able to laugh at your kids lacrosse game. You know, like most of us just lose the ability to hold the space for all of that. And many of us know what it's like to constantly bear witness to the suffering. But the idea of just being linking threading together beautiful moment after beautiful moment, not like the, you know, those moments that change your life. Not, I'm not like, but the reality of everyday living, we're like, I found a parking spot. My child got the teacher they hoped for in September. You know, this person I love picked up when I called them. I mean, like moment after moment after moment. And that helps with the equanimity and that spaciousness because just in life, one is having to kind of mitigate everything that's going on that's hard. But then for any of your colleagues who have chosen to do really, really, really hard work, it is it is imperative that we have practices where we're able to bring ourselves back to what is going well, you know, and that allows us to have that spaciousness from which you can do this work. Yes. Uh, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for everything you've shared. And um, I mean, I feel it's truly invaluable what you're doing because there are so many people who are afraid to look at, you know, how they're feeling and to do anything about it. And if listening to this might make them say, Hmm, you know, I wonder if I could make a change that would be so much worth the time that you took to talk to me. And I took to talk to you. I appreciate it so much. Oh, absolutely. I really thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. So Laura, can you tell us how people can learn more about what you're doing, where you'll be and all that stuff? So Trauma Stewardship is our website and folks can jump on there and hopefully they'll find it easy enough to access whatever they would like. There's a short film on there that talks about our work. There are some interviews. Um, I was able to do a TED Talk. I was invited to do that in a women's prison. And so there's that on there. So there's a number of resources on there. Um, and then if anybody has any questions or any, if we could be of help or service in any way, we just really encourage people to reach out and be in touch with us. Awesome. And they can get in touch with you through the website too? That's right. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your work and um, take good care. Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. This episode is sponsored by the Receptionist for iPad. It's the highest rated digital check-in software for therapy offices and behavioral health clinics used by thousands of practitioners across the country. Sign up for a 14-day free trial of the Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash therapy chat. And when you do, you'll also receive a $25 Amazon gift card. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. 
And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.